Good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma farers, oh, children of the noble ones, and most excellent assembly of medium sized beings. I greet you with a happy mind, and I noticed my mind became happy just gazing out at you. So that's that's good, thank you for that. I was just doing some walking meditation for a, a while. I came over early so I could do some walking meditation over here. And I love walking meditation. It's, it's the best and I noticed in the walking meditation. And I went it outside because it's nice out right now, a little cool, but it's very beautiful. And, and I could take my mask off. And I noticed that the walking meditation at this time took me to the heart of faith, confidence, trust, sadha. That's what came for me from the walking meditation. And it was kind of unexpected, although probably it shouldn't be. But I found it interesting to notice that, that faith was arising in my heart out of the simplicity because I was just walking. I was so simple. And just a step, I was a living being walking on the earth. And thoughts came and went and concerns about coming in here and having to speak and coolness felt on the skin and all these things that anyone might notice wasn't special except there was a love in my heart for the simplicity of that, of just being a living being walking on the earth. And I was, yeah, I was just walking. And I've said this before, I would choose walking meditation if I were given the choice, I had to pick only one posture. That would be my choice. But someday I won't be able to do any walking meditation, probably. So I've been practicing reclining a lot. It's great to get all the postures going. Sometimes I think, oh, I wonder how many miles I have walked as walking meditation. I've, besides all the walks I've taken, that can be meditation too. It's a lot. It's many, many miles. I hope I get a few more miles in. I ran into Brian on the way over and so he caught up with me and we walked over together. Mostly we just walked quietly. We spoke a bit and he said he was feeling a little tired because he'd gone for a longer walk. I think he kind of took two walks. The second one wasn't planned maybe because he ran into someone that we know who's, he's on retreat in his way. And he's someone I've known for about 30 years. He was on staff here at IMS before ever I came here. And he lives in Barrie and he's raised his children here. And he's kept an affiliation, a, a relationship with IMS over many, many years now, longer than I have. And he's he's been a householder and a father and had all those kinds of duties, but he's also, he's really a yogi. And he has a, 
I just found it so... I haven't thought of him lately, but he's been such a steady yogi. He's in it for the long haul. And he, he practices every day. And that commitment and um, dedication, sincerity, is, uh, fills my heart with, uh, with joy, really. So it was very, uh, I was very happy that Brian shared that with me. He hasn't known this person as long as I have. I thought it was, I, I, I have such um, appreciation, I've said this before, but it, it strikes me off and on, this appreciation for my colleagues on the teaching team. They are so good. And, and that, um, that gives me a little freedom too, because I know they will offer such fine teachings and they, they offer such beautiful Dharma talks. So I can just start talking. <laughs> I feel a little more free. So I haven't gotten to my talk. And I may get to it. But I don't, I don't have to. And I may be... I may be counting a little too much on your patience and willingness to forgive. That's possible. But I'm going to take the chance. But I was very inspired by something that uh, Brian said this morning, a couple of things, but especially when he said we could look at these difficulties. And it was when he was talking about his own struggles with uh, self-judgment and um, and the ways that he has found to relate to it. And I was thinking, well, I don't know if my struggles with self-judgment have been wor- worse than his, but at least as bad, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and those habits are deep in there and they come up sometimes. And then to see these as a, a gift from the gods I just love that, that these, these times are a chance to develop love and compassion. Well, I want that any time I can get it. And Brian was also talking about how, how we need to have a wide view of what we call our practice and this path. And he said it in a particular way, but... I feel like this is so important that if we ever see ourselves putting some aspect of our life outside of the practice, we should look carefully and question that. And I think I have and probably some of my friends up on the teaching team have used this image of seeing the practice as, um, as planting seeds. Have we said that? I think we said it in some way or other. We can see each moment of mindfulness as a seed we're planting. I want to read you something from a, a book called Lab Girl by... Hope, I think it's probably pronounced Yarin's, Yarin, but it may be some other pronunciation. After scientists broke open the coat of a lotus seed, and its name, uh, technical name was Nelumbo nucifera, and coddled the embryo into growth, They kept the empty husk. When they radiocarbon dated this discarded outer shell, they discovered that their seedling had been waiting for them within a peat bog in China for no less than 2,000 years. This tiny seed had stubbornly kept up the hope of its own future while entire human civilizations rose and fell. And then one day, this little plant's yearning finally burst forth within a laboratory. I wonder where it is right now. A seed knows how to wait. 
Most seeds wait for at least a year before starting to grow. A cherry seed can wait a hundred years with no problem. What exactly each seed is waiting for is known only to that seed. But a seed is alive while it waits. Every acorn on the ground is just as alive as the 300-year-old oak tree that towers over it. They are both just waiting. The seed is waiting to flourish while the tree is only waiting to die. When you are in the forest, for every tree that you see, there are at least a hundred trees waiting in the soil, alive and fervently wishing to be. Each beginning is the end of a waiting. We are each given exactly one chance to be. Each of us is both impossible and inevitable. Every replete tree was first a seed that waited. I love the fact that the, in the first part of this, these, these were two quotations, that it was a lotus seed because the lotus has such a, a place in, in this tradition, the, the lotus blooming out of the mud. And have you seen the lotuses? Have you ever seen them? They're a kind of water lily. They're so beautiful. And, and the Buddha is sitting on a kind of lotus flower in the image behind the, in the statue behind me. And Kuan Yin is sitting on a lotus pedestal. So these, this image of the lotus goes so far back and they grow in the part of the world where the Buddha lived, the lotuses. I often read a, a quote by a, a priest named Henri Nouwen as a, I think, a nice, a beautiful description of our practice, of mindfulness practice. He once said, the spiritual life is a life in which we wait, actively present to the moment, trusting that new things will happen to us new things that are far beyond our imagination, fantasy, or prediction. This indeed is a very radical stance toward life in a world preoccupied with control. A life in which we wait actively present to the moment. That sounds like mindfulness, this active presence. This is, did Don said soft readiness? Did you use that? Soft readiness. So something we can do to increase the width of our our vision or view or how we look at practice has to do with um, seeing practice in terms of what are called the, the ten paramis or paramitas in Sanskrit. And um, these are these 10 in this tradition, there are other ones have a different number in this tradition. It's 10 beautiful, uh, noble qualities. And the Buddha is said to have developed these over countless lifetimes. Countless is a lot because I think people who are interested in counting can, can go really far. <laughs> I'm not a mathematician, but I know they can get really, really a lot. I don't know if anyone has gotten to the end of counting. Maybe you mathematicians in here will say, yes, there is an end. But I think there's always one more. So if it's countless, it's, it's even more than one more than everything. And so that gives us a a different scale to work with here as we think about what we're doing. So I'll I'll mention these. Most of you know them, I'm sure. The first one, I'll say the Pali and the English. The first one is Dana, and that's giving, or sometimes we say generosity. There's another word, Chaga, which maybe means more generosity, and Dana is, is giving, offering. Sila, ethical conduct. 
Nekama is renunciation. Panya is wisdom. Virya is energy or effort. Kanti is patience. Satcha, truthfulness. Aditana, resolve. Metta, goodwill. Upeka, equanimity. What if this retreat is just about kanti parami, patience? Or this whole lifetime is just about energy in the form of a persistence and gentle uh, determination to continue. Is that all right? Would that be okay? I'm going to just spend this lifetime exploring metta, goodwill. Are you, are you down for that? Because we tend to want things, we don't want to spend countless lifetimes just on patience. Patience, boy, that would be good to have, wouldn't it? But we can look at impatience as a gift from the gods. Well, I'm really not getting to this talk. Because that's how we learn about patience is, is when impatience comes. That's the best way. Hello, impatience. Thank you. And that's hard to feel sometimes, I know. But it's a possibility that we can hold these things in this different way. It was so great to have Joseph join us last night, wasn't it? He offered those, he summed up at the end, he, he, he through his, his answers, he touched on these four different uh, kind of practice modalities. And I love, every time Joseph goes on retreat, which is his three months or so every year, he has a, a new thing. So one year it was, uh, there is a body, that framing that he spoke of last night. And and I was reminded last night when he, he talked about his reflection on impermanence, that which is subject to arising also passes away. Therefore, there is nothing to want. And his the way he spoke about the direct felt sense of that in each moment, with each step, you could say, And I remember some years ago, he, he brought forward this, the practice, the second thing that he offered last night, what is being known right now. And he suggested kind of using a note, it's being known, naming what's being known. And then this sense of creating a bigger frame. That's so, so helpful, friends. If you heard nothing else, if you hear nothing else out of this retreat, but this uh, idea that you could, uh, you, this is so applicable. You can always step back and create a bigger frame. Maybe we can create a frame that's big enough to um, be with the death, death of the body. So if there's confusion, we don't have to struggle. We just can step back and say, oh, this is confusion. It feels like this. We can always know it's like this right now. This is a really, really good. It, it makes things workable that seem like they're not workable. He, he Joseph loves settle back. He's been saying settle back since before I met him, and that's pretty long ago. But it has such a, it's like, oh yeah. There's a relaxation in that, and an openness, and it's a bigger frame. And then, I haven't heard him say this before, love no matter what. So beautiful. So that's four really great things you can maybe remember sometime and 
and they're, and they're, they're practices right in the moment. We're all walking this, this path and it's the same path that the Buddha walked and all of his disciples and all the yogis down through time, all the ordained sangha and seekers in this tradition and in other traditions. And we start to really touch into that, I think, as, as we continue our practice, as we decide that we're in it for the long haul. I remember I came here to IMS for the first time, just a, a short time after I'd ever done any meditation. I started meditating at a 10-day retreat, and that was interesting. But it uh, wasn't that easy because I showed up never having done any of it. And by the end, I was very interested and it came at a good time in my life. And I heard about um, this place at that retreat. My dear friend and colleague and teacher, Carol Wilson, was one of the teachers. And she said, oh, there's a three-month retreat at IMS. And I said, oh, I want to do that but I didn't um, qualify because I had only done a little meditation. So I had to, uh, I had to get an, at least another retreat under my belt. <laughs> so I came out and did some more retreats and a work retreat. And, and uh, then I sat the three month retreat that, that falls so about six months after I'd ever done any formal practice. And I had a point I guess I was just thinking of this, this walking this path and, and the sense that, um, you know, that very first retreat that I went, that was the start and then coming here after that. I had been living and working in San Francisco and I, I had been, we had a, I had a business with some friends and we did close the business down so it was good timing. but. I didn't think when I went to that retreat that I would be heading my life off into 20, more than 20 years of, um, of not having a fixed address and being a wandering yogi. <laughs> that wasn't the plan, but that's what happened. And it was fortunate timing and there were a lot of things that... Um, made that a possibility for me. One of those being the privilege granted to me as a a white male and having the confidence to, of knowing I would be able to get a job, knowing that there were, there were those who would help me out if I needed a place to stay. But but it was yeah more than twenty years of of this sort of faith in the Dhamma that uh, something would come the next thing would come and some of that time was traveling and practicing in India and time in robes in Burma and time in Thailand and and working now and then all kinds of things that filled in those years. And it was it was difficult, you know. We we see that it's not easy to walk this path. There are maybe easier choices, in some ways. It takes real dedication, and it's helpful to have guides, wise friends, and. And it's also good to find sources of inspiration that are sources of inspiration that come our way. We, we find those if we're lucky. And I was thinking about this for myself and thinking of all the sources of inspiration. Joseph is a source of inspiration. All of you are a source of inspiration. Every time I teach, the people I teach, 
It's a gift to me. It's, it's um, teaching is onward leading for me as a yogi. It's a good thing for me to do. That's probably one of the main reasons I keep doing it. Is because it, it has that. It lifts me up. Spending time with you lift me up. Lifts me up. And I've, I've met so many inspiring seekers and sages and yogis and teachers. I started listing them and it, it went on and on. It was fun to do. Some of them are ones that I have met and some are ones that I've heard about or teachers of my teachers or, or ones that were alive at the time of the Buddha and they they have been sources of energy and confidence and um, faith for me, inspiration along the path. So I'm dedicating this, whatever this thing is that we're calling a Dharma talk to all yogis, past, present, and future. So that's all of you. So this talk is dedicated to you in gratitude with humility and respect and with um, yeah, a deep uh, love for your sincerity. And I'm not just being kind here or trying to make you feel good. I have too much respect for myself and you all to ever do that. So I mean it with all sincerity. So this sangha, we create the sangha here each time we come together in the hall and, and having come together, this, we create sangha. But then there's this river of the sangha. Sometimes I feel that flow over time and we can, we can step into it and walk along with the seekers and sages and, and yogis of uh, the past and the present. And then we're the yogis and others may, may come and walk with us. And they, they show us the way and they help us along the way. It reminds me of the, when the Buddha said to Ananda, when Ananda said, uh, Venerable Sir, indeed the, the, the friendship is half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, don't say that Ananda, don't say that. Friendship is the whole of the holy life. The holy life being the life um, in, of, a, of a, the, the ordained sangha in, in that particular case, but of those who are, who are true seekers. One being who's, who I never had the chance to meet, who's... Uh, a real source of inspiration to me is the teacher Deepama. And there's a, a beautiful book. There's Deepama. I don't know. There's pictures. There used to be some pictures of her in M200. Are there any pictures? Is, is there? Yeah. You should go and, and see Deepama's picture there. And she was... Um, Joseph's, one of Joseph's and Sharon's teachers and many of the people who, who were founders of this place and, and have been associated with IMS and many, many others. This book was written by a, a friend, Amita Schmidt. Um, and it has, has lots of pictures. My favorite picture, I just love it. It's a picture of Joseph. It's taken from behind and it's Joseph walking along holding hands with Deepama. You can't see it probably. And I just love it because Joseph is not a walk along, hold hands kind of guy. <laughs> it just is not his style. And he's, you might've noticed he's pretty tall and Deepama was quite smallish. And so um, they, they're an interesting um, 
size, yeah, it's they're interesting to see them together in that regard, but um, like I can imagine, okay, she's one of the few people Joseph would have walked along with holding hands. I want to read you the, if I can find it. I marked some things. This is Joseph, I don't think it's a direct quotation quote of his, but it's, it's something he said about one of his first times he went to visit Deepama in um, where she lived in Calcutta. And I'll say a little more in a minute maybe about her, her life and uh, her practice when she first came to the Dhamma in this life. He said, to get to her small rooms on the top floor of the building, you had to go down a narrow dark hallway and then up many dark flights of stairs. But when you got to her rooms, they were felt filled with light. The feeling was wonderful. And when I would leave, it was as if I was floating down the streets of Calcutta, floating through the dirt and the crowds. It was a very magical and sacred experience. Odipamo had a lot of tragedy in her her life. She was living, uh, born in, in India, I believe, but was living in Burma with her husband and, and he was working there. And her husband and two of her children died. And she was alone with a toddler. And, um, and it was more than she could could deal with at the time and she was she took to her bed and she was in, in very bad shape for quite a long time and um, and her friends and others were very very worried about her she seemed to be failing and uh, I, I noticed in the book here it said that she had a dream where the Buddha came to her in the dream and gave her a teaching and spoke some lines out of the Dhammapada. And she uh, decided that she was going to go to a meditation center. And uh, she was a very gifted yogi and her practice unfolded very quickly. And at a certain point she went to uh, the meditation center that was um, started by uh, Mahasi Sayada that Matthew mentioned the other night, the Mahasi Yekta. It's still there in Rangoon. And um, Anagarika Munindraji was there, uh, Joseph's first teacher he mentioned last night. And so they had a shared language and um, he he kind of took her under his wing and, and so she was able to get teachings from Mahasi Sayada but, but um, in her own language and her in her native tongue. And so she, her practice unfolded very quickly. And if you read the book, which I highly recommend, there's some great stories about her, her early practice. She had very good concentration among other things. And at some point, uh, Manindraji, she was so gifted, he decided he would train her in, in these psychic powers. You don't have to believe in it, but it's in the book and, and uh, some very interesting stories. Someone once, um, I forget how, but she, she said that she could um, listen, go back mind moment by mind moment to the time of the Buddha and listen to teachings that she heard at that time. Sometimes I think maybe I was around at the time of the Buddha, but I was... I was drinking beer and throwing the dice with my friends over on the side. I was got close enough that I something was going on nearby, but but I was just goofing off with my pals over on the side. I don't know. I don't have exact memories of it, but I get the feeling sometimes. <laughs> sometimes I get the feeling that that's a safe bet. 
But she seems to have, she taught in all kinds of ways, but one of the main ways she taught was just through her presence. And um, I... People like Joseph saying it was like the room was filled with light. And he left feeling it just transformed everything to be in her presence. People said it was like being bathed in metta. Joseph said that one time he suggested that he sit for two days and he didn't mean go on a two-day retreat. He meant she meant sit down and not get up for two days. <laughs> and he said, "I'm not sure." And she said, "Oh, don't be lazy." <laughs> but here's here's something that um, that Joseph's here. This is a quotation from Joseph. Deepama's greatest gift to me was showing me what was possible and living it. She was impeccable about effort. People with this ability to make effort are not disheartened by how long it takes or how difficult it is. It takes months, it takes years. It doesn't matter because the courage of the heart is there. She gave the sense that with right effort, anything is possible. And Carol Wilson, who I just mentioned, said this, Deepama was about no nonsense and no excuses to say, oh, I'm too tired, or the conditions aren't right, or I have a backache, I don't want to practice today. There was no room for that. She made it clear that if you want to do it, you can do it if the commitment is there. For for her, there was never a reason not to sit. She didn't just understand why, she just didn't understand why we wouldn't always be practicing. Socializing was out of the question. Gossip and junk novels, no way. So I just want to read one more thing uh, from this book. And this is uh, from someone who was with Deepama at the time of her death. So Deepama is, means Deepa's mother. Her daughter was Deepa. And uh, this, uh, the person who was writing here said in, in 1989, at the age of 78, um, she was living in her apartment in Calcutta and, and uh, Deepa, Deepama's daughter, Deepa, uh, came home from work and, and her mother wasn't feeling well and Deepa asked if she should call a doctor and Deepama hesitantly agreed. And their neighbor's son, Deepa Sudi, went to find the doctor but couldn't locate him. When Sandeep returned, he sat down next to Deepa Ma and began to massage her arm. He recalled, Then Ma asked me to touch her head, so I touched her head, and I started chanting the suttas she taught me. When she heard me chanting, she bowed with her hands in prayer. She bowed towards the Buddha and did not get up. So we both lifted her off the floor and found that her breathing had stopped. She had died. She had died while bowing to the Buddha. Her face was very calm and at peace. Nearly 400 people attended her funeral several days later. Her body lay on an open cot. One by one, students filed past laying garlands on their teacher's body until she was completely covered with flowers. So I saw some of you bowing and, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe that'll be the last thing you do, bowing to the Buddha. <laughs> what a way to go. So beautiful, I think. I was doing walking meditation on a retreat at Spirit Rock once, and, and I like to get up I just wake up and I get up very early when I'm on retreat. I'm more of an early person. Some people are late. Late energy is more 
comes on in the evening. Mine, I wake up very early. And so I was doing walking meditation and it was still very early. Not very many people were there. And I remember I was walking and I thought, oh, this would be a really good time to die right now because there was calm and concentration and equanimity in the mind. And it wasn't, I didn't have a death wish, but I just thought, oh, this would be, the timing would be really good. And I thought it would, it would be upsetting maybe to the people who found the body and my, and my partner would not be happy with me. And, and then, but otherwise it seemed like really good conditions. And I remember I went to, um, I was meeting with uh, two of my friends and colleagues, Carol Wilson and Andrea were teaching that retreat, Andrea Fella. And I remember I went to meet with Carol and uh, I told her and she said, she'd, if I died, she'd kill me. <laughs> because um, I had some teaching obligations. <laughs> And she, they didn't, she didn't want to have to find someone to take my place. <laughs> anyway, it would be nice to die while bowing to the Buddha with a heart of faith. Hmm. So when I think of um, Dipama, then it makes me think of someone who maybe had some of the same feeling of, of that teaching from their presence. And that's um, Venerable Mahagosananda. Have any of you, did any of you get to meet Mahagosananda, Brian or Susie or Matthew? No, uh, someone did. Mahagosananda was the Sangharaja of Cambodia, and he was very, very um, loved as a teacher and, and leader of he, of the Sangha. He was a monk, a bhikkhu, uh, and he he was um, did a lot of uh, work having to do with uh, bringing awareness to the landmines that were left in that part of the world after uh, the conflict, after the war in Vietnam, and. Um, he worked tirelessly. He would lead marches, and he was he was also very much he was living in Thailand, right on the border during the time of the Khmer Rouge, and um, and was a source of uh, of great comfort and and uh, for for the Cambodian people there. And and later he came used to come by here sometimes. And later in his life, he was living in a in a little Cambodian uh, temple area, monastery by a temple, by the Peace Pagoda over in, in Leverett. It's uh, about 40 minutes away. And so I got to, uh, um, he came by here and I was able to spend time with him as it, and he would teach. And, and, uh, and I used to go over there sometimes and I would go to pay respects. And in his later life, he, he had lost a lot of his cognitive abilities as happens sometimes when people age. And perhaps he, he may have been, if he had been diagnosed, maybe they would have said he had Alzheimer's disease. I don't know. There's a beautiful photograph. I know there's one of them in the, in the gratitude hut at Spirit Rock. And it's a picture of his Holiness the Dalai Lama and Mahagosananda bowing to one another. And they're, they're way flat down. Each one is trying to get lower to show more respect. And it brings a lot of emotion. You'll have to uh, bear with me when I think of him. And so I went to see him the last time I saw him over at <coughs> in Leverett at the Peace Pagoda, and and he didn't know me. We were not we were not acquainted in the way that he he would have known me necessarily. I just had a lot of respect for him, and um, and I just wanted to go and pay respects. 
and I went to where he was, and the the monk who was looking after him in, in the building said, "Oh, he's he's in his um, room. You can go." <clears throat> and so I went in, and um, as soon as I came in, he started handing me presents, um, things from his shelf, a bar of soap, and mm-hmm. and things like that. That because he didn't have a lot of stuff, but just he started and he was just beaming <clears throat> and it was like being bathed in love and light <clears throat> So sometimes we're fortunate enough to get that kind of direct transmission of of Dhamma, where it just washes over us like love and light, like being in an endless pool of that. So I think maybe that's how it was, something like that for people with Dipama. They certainly speak that way. I remember Sharon saying when she first went to her, to her she said she... This was, um, I don't know if she said this exactly, but it was, it was the first time she felt totally loved unconditionally. Mm. Had so much inspiration from the nuns. And I talked about the nuns in, uh, that, we, that I support with the small aid group in Burma. But there was a, a bhikkhuni, a nun who came that I was, I just happened to walk into the staff dining room at the right time here at IMS, bhikkhuni kusama. She was, um, here's something I found recently. This is kind of an obituary. Venerable Dr. Kusama Davendra, Sri Lanka's first female monastic in 10 centuries, dies at age 92 on August 28th of this year. Venerable Dr. Kusama Devendra, a pioneering Buddhist monastic, died in Sri Lanka. She was 92, the author of several books and the founder of Ayakema International Meditation Center in Orana, Sri Lanka. Bhikkhuni Kusama is also credited with reviving the Theravada Bhikkhuni order in Sri Lanka. Inspired by Sister Ayakema, her mentor and an outspoken activist for female Buddhist practice herself, Bikuni Kusama ordained in 1996. She was the first Sri Lankan bikuni in 10 centuries. Now there are 3,000 ordained bikunis in Sri Lanka. And I remember meeting her and, and somehow we were talking about this. So this was quite a long time ago. Um, maybe because she ordained in 1996. I don't know. It was maybe not so long after that. And, and she said she had decided if I have to give up my life to do this, to start the bhikkhuni, because she had death threats. It wasn't, this wasn't an easy thing to do. There's a lot of deep hmm, confusion in the minds of some beings about... Um, the bhikkhuni lineage and a lot of resistance to it. Uh, it's it's held. The view is held that that lineage was broken, and and uh, some uh, people believe it it cannot be restarted. But she she her whole doc. She you knows she was a doctorate. Her doctorate was she traveled all over through Asia and into Korea, tracing the bhikkhuni lineage, and that was her doctorate thesis was on that. And she said she had, she decided she would do this because she was older. And she said she didn't want someone younger to do this because um, she was afraid it was dangerous. And she said to me, if I have to give up my life to do this, it's okay, I made that decision. Such conviction and dedication and uh, courage. I didn't get to hardly any of my stories. 
I guess I want to just talk about sometimes inspiration comes in the form of a place. Maybe you have a place that um, that brings you uh, energy and faith and uh, opens your heart and warms your heart and strengthens your heart. But and I have m- many places like that. But one place in particular is in the Sagang Hills in upper part of Myanmar, Burma, where I've, I've gone a lot over, because I've had such good fortune to be able to go and spend a lot of time in that country and, and live in, in monks' robes. And, and there's one place that I, well, so that place, just wandering through those hills and and gazing out across the Irrawaddy River Valley to the Irrawaddy uh, flowing um, is is a, a source of great inspiration. It's the heart. It, in some ways, it's the heart center of of um, Buddhism in that country, that troubled, beautiful country. And there's there are two small monasteries back in the hills. There, it's it's all little valleys and it's convoluted and you can wander all around. And there's a place called Parekama. And there are two Parekamas and there are caves there. And there's a story that there were two um, two practitioners who had gone there and they they were one was in one cave and one was in the other and they could they could kind of see across the valley and they made a. a they made a determination that, or a, a, their plan was, if one of them became enlightened, they would, they would. Um, it was in the day they would hang something, uh, maybe a colored piece of cloth, or at night they would, they would have a, a, a candle, a light, and they would come with it, and the other one could see. And um, it said that well, one of them, his, his practice, they were two monks, and one of their, their. Um, their practice bore the fruit of a full awakening and just at twilight. And um, just as the he was going out with the lantern, um, he looked across and saw another one. And there's a monk there. So the, the other monk at the same time. Maybe it's just a nice story. But the cave is very powerful there. I spent several weeks living in that cave. Um, once and the the abbot at the one that I'm most connected with is the eastern one and and there's a monk there who I um, love dearly and he uh, he has this simple purity one of my friends some of my friends call him the angel Sayadaw he seems like an angel to them and he um he has this purity of of heart that that kind of shines forth. He's just a very simple monk, but he does everything with such care. I, I've spent quite a bit of time there and time on retreat there, and and just his presence is a is a, it's so good for me to be around. That it shows me a possibility that I sometimes lose sight of the purity of his conduct and the simplicity of how he he walks the path. And there's another um, Sayadaw in the hills that some of you have heard me talk about. These are the Myatong Sayadaw. We called him the happy Sayadaw. And um, he was understood by the people in the area to have been fully enlightened. I was going to talk about a number of my, I was going to call this talk, um, Arahants I Have Known and Loved. <laughs> but I'm only going to get to the Myatong Sayada, but he's a good one. He was um, probably the happiest being I have ever met. And it was worth going all the way to Burma just to sit with him for a while. <clears throat> he died, he got to be, he was almost a hundred. So he was already quite old when 
when I met him, when my friends and I met him, and we used to try to go see him as, as often as we could. And he was so, so light and so deep. And he had been a teacher of many people, and he had managed to, to go and be living very simply. One of my friends once asked him, Asaida, why are you so happy? And he said, oh, I have no ill will towards you or you or you or anyone anywhere. No ill will of any kind. I need to stop, but there are so many others that I'd like to tell you about of these sources of inspiration. But I want to end tonight. Mm. A lot of good stuff here. (laughs) (laughs) I've had the chance, one thing I'll mention, thinking about the paramis, I have been the the attendant and cook to some very, very uh, highly regarded teachers, particularly monks, because that's been my connection, Burmese monks. So I have, I've been a cook and attendant to Sayada Ulakana, who I've mentioned, my, my dear teacher, and Sayada Upandita and Venerable Paok Sayada. And I have the distinction of having put socks on Sayada Upandita's feet, because someone knitted him some special socks with toes. And as soon as he got them, he wanted, he wanted to put them on, but he he couldn't really get down and put them on, so he, he made me crawl under the table and put the socks on. <laughs> and, you know, he has a reputation for fierceness, but I got to just hang out with him because I was his cook and, and uh, attendant. And um, he was so kind to me. I remember he, he came in the morning and he gave me lessons in cooking the rice porridge that, the, that, that they they have always as part of their breakfast. And, and he, I remember he was standing right next to me and telling me how to do it because um, I was doing it wrong. And, but he gave me, he called me Surasaka, which means good cook. And uh, he was always so, so, um, so kind and gentle. And I practiced with him, and I know the fierce side too, but seeing that other side that... Um, People don't hear about those, that side of Sayadaji. I have a lot of love for him. One time, you know how, I'm just going to go on a little bit. Um, you know how sometimes in the suttas and stories, they, the Buddha gives a discourse and, and everyone there got enlightened or at least partly enlightened. <laughs> you know, there's stories like that, listening to the Dhamma. And I, um, I always thought, well, it just someone put that in there later on to make the Buddha look really good. <laughs> um, but then when I was practicing with Sayadaji, I had these experiences where it became so clear to me that, of course, that could happen. I, I had such powerful experiences while he was teaching. And, and it was through a translator it was maybe not the words. Sometimes he would come in and sit and it was like looking into a deep well. And I thought, oh, of course. So you never know. It's important to listen well. Okay, I want to end with uh, reading some words from an enlightened nun in, who lived in Thailand, uh, lived to be 90, from 1901 to 1991. Her name is uh, Mei Chi Kao. And she was a student of uh, two very famous uh, Thai teachers, Ajahn Man, who was Ajahn Chah's teacher and Ajahn Mahabua's teacher and many other, um, the teacher of some very famous teachers. And... Uh, there was a book that a monk wrote about her life. 
that's just called Mei Chi Kao, and you might be able to find it. Um, but I want to read these, these words from her, from that book. I think it's, these words are, are very inspiring for me. So I hope that you can just let, let them in and let them rest in your heart gently. So she's talking about her practice and her experience. Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known, earth, water, fire, and wind, body, feeling, memory, thought, and consciousness, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, and emotions, anger, greed, and delusion. All are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states, but no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. In a perfectly still crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily, fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight, and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is, by its very nature, absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. So maybe I'll have a chance to tell a few more stories and share more from my, my path of this, walking this path. But I hope something in something in here, um, something of of the inspiration that I have have received from uh, these teachers and yogis, I hope some of that uh, flows into your hearts. And I think I'll end with this simple uh, blessing chant. This is called "May There Be All Blessings." And it's the way we always would end the day in one of the monasteries where I spent some time. And I, I've, I've, this is a shortened version of it. Usually it's done over three, three repetitions, but I'm going to do it very simply. And I'm, saying, I'm offering this chant as my wish for you now and always. And you'll, some of you will recognize this. And I'll do it in Pali and English, line by line. Bhavatu sabamangalang, may there be all blessings. Rakantu sabadevata, may all the devas protect you. Sabbuddhanu bhavena. Sabadamma nubhavena, Sabasanga nubhavena sadasoti, Bhavantute. By the power of all the Buddhas, all of the Sangdhamma and all of the Sangha, may you always be happy and safe. So I've run over a little bit, but we can sit quietly for a moment together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.